0: Welcome to Season 5 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome back to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Karen Cushman, your host, along with co-host Clint Taylor, and today we have two guests. First, we are excited to welcome back Dr. Louis Reyes, Medical Director and Chief Scientific Officer at Memorial Cancer Institute. There, he leads the thoracic oncology program and specializes in treating patients with lung cancer. We also have with us Dr. Pranil Chandra, Chief Genomic Officer of Genomic and Molecular Pathology at Path Group. Gentlemen, thank you and welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. Before we get started, we want to thank our title sponsor, Janssen Biotech, for supporting this educational episode focused on enabling comprehensive genomic testing in non-small cell lung cancer. This episode is not certified for continuing medical education. Our guests are not paid speakers for Janssen Biotech, Inc., but are presenting on behalf of Janssen and must present information in compliance with FDA requirements applicable to Janssen. Some areas of the audio have been edited slightly to remove sensitive information. So with that, let's dive in. Dr. Reyes, it is hard to believe that it's been two years since you joined us on the podcast. It was November of 2020, and we were in the thick of COVID back then. But for our listeners out there, as a companion to this episode... I want to invite you to check out episode 41 with Dr. Reyes for more on the impact of precision medicine in lung cancer. And of course, there is some bonus content there around how Memorial Cancer Institute approached getting patients back in the clinic during COVID. So I think you'll find it very interesting. So we know that delivering the right treatment for cancer begins with the appropriate testing. Yet, in diseases like non small cell lung cancer, where we've seen remarkable advances in the identification of driver mutations and related targeted and immunotherapies, appropriate biomarker testing still lags significantly behind guideline recommendations. Of course, there have been a number of studies and articles published on this, but today we're going to focus on the My Lung Retrospective Observational Study, published in April of 22. This study investigated metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients receiving first-line systemic therapy within a large community oncology network from April of 2018 through March of 2020. The study found that while most patients were tested for one biomarker, only 46% were tested for all five of the guideline-recommended markers. These include pdl one EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and BRAF, and this includes the use of next-generation sequencing. This growth and complexity translates into an enormous gap between available life extending targeted therapies on the market today and the lung cancer patients who need them. So, in this episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast, thanks to our expert guests, Dr. Luis Reyes and Dr. Pranil Chandra, we will address the root causes of biomarker testing adoption, the barriers associated with guideline adherence, and how pathologists and oncologists can work better together to create stronger collaborations that enable a comprehensive and routine approach to precision oncology. So, Clint, thank you for joining me today as co-host. I will turn it over to you to kick off our discussion. Great. Thanks, Karen. Gentlemen, again, great
2: to have you on the podcast. As Karen mentioned, we've been talking on this podcast for some time now about the lag in biomarker adoption and related appropriate testing, especially in lung cancer, where we've made tremendous progress and perhaps the greatest known therapy developments exist, Dr. Reyes and Dr. Chandra. We're hoping you can help us better understand why it's taking so long to achieve a higher adoption rate. Let's start with you, Dr. Reyes. What do you feel are some of the key barriers for oncologists in performing comprehensive genomic profiling in non-small cell lung cancer patients?
1: I think uh, we have several different factors. Um, I think uh, technology and science are moving very fast, and it's very hard to catch up, especially because uh, oncology is very broad now. Um, some of us, for example, explain uh, spend all of our time uh, fighting lung cancer. And for me, today, it's uh, very easy to believe that every new lung cancer patient metastatic Needs to be a screen for uh, ten my biomarkers that are uh, well documented, but I think even for a general oncologist, that's not something easy to keep in mind, with so many cancers, treatments, and uh, biomarkers that exist for all the old tumors. No, so that's why uh, I think uh, uh, education of the providers is a very important factor. Uh, the other thing is regulatory. You know, I uh, sometimes. Uh, For example, the day that we uh, published that uh, EFR therapy is standard of care post-surgery for adjuvant therapy, I'm not sure how many biomarker companies have the approval for that indication. So in other words, the indication for approval for the use of the drug came while I think most of the biomarkers were approved only for metastatic disease. So that's why it's not only the doctors or the providers, it's also... Something at the level of the regulatory that needs to move, I think, a little bit faster. Then you have the insurance companies also that uh, they are a little bit sometimes slow to adopt the uh, these issues. And then you have disparities, you know, that the the adoption of the biomarkers in communities uh, is not the same. I'm not only talking about race of ethnicity, that is very obvious, but uh, rural communities don't keep the pace with... Uh, as uh, uh, major cities, academic centers don't have the same pace as uh, 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 community oncologists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No, that's why this is a very exciting topic because I guess we can discuss a lot about these issues.
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, some of these these points you're bringing up are are um, they're familiar, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Sandra? Anything to add to that?
3: Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head by saying that these factors are familiar so first of all i agree the there is an enormous amount of complexity and the pace of innovation in precision diagnostics is increasing very rapidly and so that poses a very significant challenge to not only oncologists but pathologists as well and this requires an immense amount of engagement and education to make the appropriate stakeholders be aware of the criticality of making sure that you're ordering the right test for the right patient at the right time. A few years ago, it was standard of care to perform EGFR and ALK testing in lung cancer. And as Dr. has mentioned, today, the standard of care in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer is comprehensive genomic profiling. And not everyone understands that. And there is now published data that supports uh, what I'm saying and underscores the significant gaps that exist today in the delivery of precision oncology and precision diagnostics. There are a, a few other factors that come to mind. And so I'll just review them one by one. So The next factor that comes to mind is quality, quantity, and access to tissue. Now that we need to be performing comprehensive genomic profiling, it is extremely important that there is enough tissue, both quality and quantity, and I'll get into that, uh, there is enough high quality and high quantity tissue to not only make the diagnosis, but also to perform ancillary molecular testing. By high quality of tissue, we uh, what I mean is that you have an ample amount of tissue that lacks areas of necrosis or fibrosis, and so there is a good high and high quality of tumor content uh, that's present. And that's what I mean by quantity. Usually for molecular studies, you need at least Two to four millimeters of tissue with at least twenty percent tumor. The next challenge uh, that comes to mind is the report readability and interpretation. Oftentimes, our oncology colleagues get reports—next-generation sequencing reports, comprehensive genomic profiling reports—that are fifteen pages long, and you get all this information and I'll get calls from my oncologist. Hey, Pruneel, what do I do with all this information? I've got 15 pages and do I go after this uh, target or do I go after this target? Because there might be uh, 10, sometimes 15 genomic aberrations that are listed in in, in the report. So I think there is an opportunity to improve the report readability, and the interpretation. So in our practice, a little bit about our practice uh, at PATH Group, we offer pathology and molecular diagnostic services to greater than 100 hospitals that are part of integrated regional healthcare systems, as well as to hundreds of physicians and outpatient uh, practices. And we designed a report that was simple, lucid, where everything, Is summarized on the first page. And all of the biomarkers are ranked based on the strength of medical and scientific evidence. So, this is an example of what the pathology lab or what a molecular vendor can do to make sure that the reports are more easily readable and interpretable to the busy practicing uh, oncologist. I think the other challenge is improved and uh, coordination and collaborative communication between pathologists and oncologists because sometimes the test just doesn't get ordered. And the oncologist may be waiting for the pathologist to order the test, or by the time the oncologist sees the patient, it's too late. Uh, in, in the sense that uh, the patient already has advanced disease and results are needed yesterday. And oftentimes, the pathologist uh, might be reluctant to order an expensive comprehensive genomic profiling test because they may not be comfortable with the test ordering. And so the test never gets ordered. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there's data that shows that there is a very significant underutilization of molecular oncology and precision diagnostic testing. And finally, the last thing that comes to mind is reimbursement and regulation. While the reimbursement for next-generation sequencing is improving and evolving, it has gotten better, but it can still be a barrier because there are, believe it or not, some insurance carriers that will not reimburse for comprehensive genomic profiling in patients with advanced lung cancer. It just blows my mind. I'd love to get your thoughts, Dr. Reyes, on this, but we have multiple payers that just do not pay for the testing. And that's unfortunate because the cost of NGS can be much less than performing multiple single gene tests uh, at a, at a, at a time. so I think um, there are a number of factors that I've summarized, uh, reimbursement. We can also talk about the fourteen day rule. I'll get into that in a little bit, but um, I've said a lot, so I'm gonna take a pause there, and uh, I would love to uh, get the reaction from my other colleagues here.
0: Dr. Reyes, would you like to add some color?
1: Yes, uh, I think as I said, this the topic is very broad, so and uh... it is. And uh, really, we, we can complement no some aspects of that no. For example, uh, uh, the pathologist. For example, uh, uh, I always wondering uh, why, um, for example, they don't do what we call re- 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 reflex testing no. Uh, if you if you see the best example is uh, breast cancer, uh, you know, you get the reports, adenocarcinoma of the breast, and then the report carries the uh, ER positive, uh, PR positive, HER2 positive, negative. Everything is there. So when the patient comes to you, you already have all the information that you need, no? Um, in the specific case of lung cancer, uh, we are the medical oncologists the ones that we need to order this test and that takes, uh, we have lost probably like two or three weeks since the patient had a biopsy. And that's a big problem, no? So that's why uh, maybe one day uh we can find ways to collaborate with the pathologists and try to advocate for a, a more reflex testing because I don't think there is any doubt that uh, we need these 10 markers anyway. So... That's one thing. The other thing is, uh, for tissue, maybe the solution is the liquid biopsy. You know, I am uh, in a couple of international committees that we advocate liquid biopsies worldwide. And the liquid biopsies have proved to be as good as tissue biopsies. And uh, and the benefit is the turnaround time. You know, uh, as an average, for example, here in Florida, we get uh, in nine days the result of the liquid biopsy. While well, the tissue takes two or three weeks, you know, and and the the NGS is the same. The problem is that uh, uh, in a lot of major centers like mine, uh, we get patients from different small hospitals, and and we don't have any authority to to be sure that if I order the tissue biopsy today, that that small hospital submits to one of the vendors the same day. You know, sometimes they they submit three days later, one week later, ten days later. And that is why we have so many delays with a tissue NGS. That's why we advocate that um, liquid biopsies in the front line. Um, We have a publication this month in clinical lung cancer you want to review. We we have 170 patients that we did at the same time, liquid and tissue. And we showed that in 70%, 70% of the patients, Nine days later, we can make a treatment decision based on the liquid biopsy only without the need to wait for the tissue biopsy. At least in this group of patients, I think we can have a more accurate, um, faster, um, approach, uh, to what we do today, you know? So, so that's why there, there, there are many caveats in these issues about, uh, l- lack of biomarker testing, but certainly we cannot, uh, have a standard of care for lung cancer that is proper without the biomarker testing and uh, the other thing is very compelling uh, is that honestly I don't understand why they don't pay for that you know um as you can uh, imagine uh, the, you the, cost of the yeah the cost of immunotherapy is uh, and chemo is, is staying'' it's, it's um, extremely expensive if i will be the the medical director of any insurance company i will require biomarker testing because the cost of the oral therapy is much cheaper than the cost to be bringing the patient to a chemo unit administering chemo charging for the administration and nursing and all the hours sitting there plus the cost of the medication so that's why um i don't know you know something is wrong with uh the way that they approach uh, medicine, uh, if they want to do a cost-effective medicine. Uh, I should be requiring mandatory testing before to approve any immunotherapy in, in these
3: days. You know, absolutely, and and you know, like that's that's the one thing that really gets to me is that we have seen in in our in some of our practices where immunotherapy has been administered to the patient and then you you do the molecular testing and, and you come back with an EGFR mutation and you know obviously hindsight is 2020 20, but I couldn't agree more um, you got to get the molecular testing whether it's through tissue biopsy or liquid biopsy testing you need those biomarker results before making therapeutic treatment decisions, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, once you start immunotherapy and a patient has an EGFR mutation, it's not like you can switch them to a targeted right. therapy right away.
1: Yeah, so that's, that, 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 that's correct, you know, and uh, the, and something that is be, becoming very common in the United States that is like, honestly, nobody's following the guidelines, because what happened is, because you know that the tissue takes three or four weeks and the poor patient and the family are so impatient to start therapy as soon as possible, yep. uh, what we do is we start chemo alone empirically until we get the NGS results three or four weeks later because we don't want to give the immunotherapy and then to discover that the patient is a EFR or ALK fusion, and, uh, and that can be detrimental because it increases the risk of pneumonitis. So that's why uh, uh, it's, it's, it's surprising that in this country, we are starting chemo only in a stage four lung cancer patients because of all of these logistic issues with biomarker testing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You no, know, I, I think the other thing, Dr. Reyes, that I think might help ameliorate uh, these challenges is something that you mentioned earlier, which is reflex testing. And that's music to my ears because I happen to be a huge proponent of reflex testing that is coordinated between the oncologist and the pathologist. And so in some of our institutions, we have actually implemented standing orders that have been signed off by, let's say, the head of thoracic medical oncology and and basically allowing the pathologist to act as a surrogate for the oncologist in driving the right test for the right patient at the right time. And There are now studies that show that such coordinated multidisciplinary institutional efforts can lead to shorter time to treatment, can lead to a better identification of targetable alterations, and just a better sense of what's going on at a molecular level uh, with the patient. And then liquid biopsy is a tremendous asset. And I, I hope that we move to a paradigm where both liquid biopsy and tissue biopsy are used together, and they do complement each other. And of course, when liquid biopsy is negative, you can't exclude a genomic aberration. But when it's positive, as you mentioned, Dr. Reyes, you've got yourself a treatment target that you can act upon uh, ASAP. But I did want to share an anecdotal example of a liquid biopsy um, based on a recent conversation that I had with one of my oncologists, we had actually performed tissue biopsy testing and we found an EGFR-exon 19 deletion on tissue biopsy. And And I got a call from one of my oncologists and he said, Pernille, your your test results are wrong. I'm like, okay, well, thank you. Help me understand why you feel my test results are wrong. And he said, well, you tell you're telling me that there's an EGFR exon 19 deletion, but I did liquid biopsy and I found a KRAS, I think it was a G12 something mutation, and those are supposed to be mutually exclusive. So we had a really good conversation about that, and you know I asked him, does the patient have metastatic disease in multiple areas of metastases? And he said, well, yes, uh, multiple uh, metastatic sites. So. Long story short, the, the patient did have an EGFR exon 19 deletion, but they, the patient also had a KRAS mutation. And mm-hmm. um, the, the full scope of information for the patient was available through the complementary information that was rendered from tissue biopsy sequencing and liquid biopsy.
0: So, Dr. Chandra, that's, that's really insightful, and Dr. Reyes, um, obviously, this is a really broad topic, um, and there's so many different avenues we could go down right away. Can we, um, let's spend a few minutes looking at a more specific example and talk through liquid biopsy and some of the other um, technologies that we're touching upon here. And so, if we were to use a rare case example of EGFR, or Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, Exon 20 Insertion Mutation, let's use that. That is as a real-world example. Let's talk about, can you both explain why why it is so important to do comprehensive genomic testing up front? We've touched on that a little bit, but if you both could kind of articulate that, and I think, Dr. Chandra, from your pathologist perspective, let's start with you.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to kick things off on, on that topic. So first of all, each of our exon 20 insertion mu- mutations are very, very important. They are not very common, mm-hmm. and uh, single gene testing, like PCR-based testing, they might be able to pick up one or two types of eGFR of exon twenty insertion mutations, but the rest of them are going to be missed. Um, and the reason is because the the type of exon twenty insertion mutation can be very diverse, and picking all of them up is not conducive by PCR-based testing. You need a comprehensive genomic profiling test to be able to pick up that mutation.
0: Mm. And, and Dr. Reyes, you know, why do you think so many oncologists are still treating Exxon 20 the same way using PCR um, and not moving towards the adoption of new technologies?
1: But at the end of the day, how do you discover Exxon 20? Is a uh... You, you discover because you are looking for the 10 genes, you know. So, it's, it's not like a, you, you are only looking for exon 20.
0: Right. Um,
1: the problem is very complex because, for example, in EFR, the most common are exon 19 and 21. But this is only 80% of the EFR mutations. So, if you want to find the other 20%, and you're talking about hundreds of patients, if not thousands, you need to do NGS. Because you cannot have, a, I don't know how many, Dr. Chanda knows better, how many PCR probes you can have. There is, last time I checked, there is like a 60 different types of EFR mutations, including exon 20. And the only way that you can catch them all is to doing NGS. And, uh, and not even NGS uh, hotspot, NGS of the whole uh, uh, exon. That's why uh, I, I don't see a, a way to get out of this, you know. It has to be NGS and uh, and and... Uh, I don't think the PCR can replace.
3: First of all, I completely agree with the, the PCR's lack of ability to capture all the different alterations. PCR is really no good. And I am now today, my, my answer 10 years ago was very different to what it is today. Today, I, I am of the mindset that you go all the way comprehensive genomic profiling or you don't do anything at all unless you have very, very little tissue and you can only do one, two, or three tests. But if you have a patient with lung cancer, what my team and I, and when I say my team, we have a, a team of molecular pathologists and scientific directors uh, across our enterprise network. We have collectively championed and articulated that it is in the best interest of patient care to do comprehensive genomic profiling in patients with lung cancer, period.
0: The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue
3: right after this. With
0: the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit trapellohealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most.
2: When tissue is inadequate, liquid biopsy is becoming the standard, especially critical for lung cancer patients in detecting these rare cases like EGFR, exon 20 insertion mutations. Some feel liquid biopsy may even transform early screening for lung cancer patients. Now you guys are obviously, you guys are dialed into the the, the benefits of, of liquid biopsy. Why aren't more oncologists adopting this? Is it just too early? What are What's what's keeping it, what's slowing down its adoption?
3: Yeah, there are a couple of things there, Clint. One is in medicine, when there's a major breakthrough, it always takes time for it to get adopted. And so what happens is you'll have some breakthrough publications that will come out and then you'll have More publications that come out. And then somewhere down the road, there is a change to medical practice guidelines, for example, NCCN guidelines. Um, And so all of that takes time. The other is reimbursement. I, I will tell you that payers are generally excruciatingly slow in adopting reimbursement to keep up with the rapid pace of scientific advancement. I would say that tissue biopsy testing reimbursement is getting better, but there are still a lot of barriers there. Um, Liquid biopsy testing is still relatively new and there are only some assays that get reimbursed, but um, reimbursement is generally pretty decent in non-small cell lung cancer. But all of this is just going to take time. Dr. Reyes, um,
0: Dr. Chandra touched on the issues with reports, right? I mean, an oncologist receives a report back that's pages and pages long. And so that's one of the known barriers um, in adopting and following new guidelines. Can you offer your perspective um, on whether you feel that the major oncology testing labs are making enough of a dramatic improvement in the reformatting of the reports um, so that that key information is more upfront? What's your feeling on the current reports from labs?
1: No, that's totally true because um, especially uh, I am a lung cancer doctor and it's not um, unusual for me to, to have trouble sometimes recognizing some variant or some new mutation or something I never seen before in the report. And I'm lucky that I have a molecular tumor board where we have uh, two or three precision medicine experts that explain to me what is that. But even like that, you know, that happens once a month. So I cannot imagine, you know, being in any community or 80% of the patients are taking care, trying for the doctor to learn by himself, you know. And and of course, the vendors always tell, oh, don't worry, you can contact us. But, you know, these, these, these doctors are very busy also. So that's why it's very complex. And also... The the, doc, the oncologists also are worried about liability. You know, they don't want to see things there that they don't know what to do because they don't want these things to come back one day and say, hey, oh, you didn't do anything, and, and the doctor said, I didn't know anything about this. And that's what I have heard of several uh, panels that we have in the community. I think that in one way it's good that they report a lot, because for me, the value is in the clinical trials, you know, um, I, I, even if I don't find one of the 10 genetic aberrations for what there are FDA approved agents, I still get excited when I found three, four, five other genes because that give the patient a chance to be enrolled in a clinical trial. But that is not the case everywhere. Yeah, you may have a practice that don't have any clinical trials, so that information for you it doesn't have any use. I think the report should be more black and white. They can tell you exactly if the patient benefits or not. And and really put a disclaimer that the other genes may be used for clinical trials or maybe for future discoveries.
3: I totally agree. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we spent almost two years designing our reports, because of the feedback that we got from oncologists, and and I personally, I do not agree with the way that most of these other reports are rendered. What you get from some of these other companies is a fifteen-page report. Here are the alterations, doctor oncologist, and you figure out what to do with the patient with these fifteen different genomic aberrations, right? And, and I don't think that's right, uh, for, first of all, because oncologists are really busy and number one. And number two, there needs to be um, a way that you go through all of the alterations and you digest it down for the oncologist and you present it to the oncologist to make their lives easier. And the way we did that was by designing a one-page report where A biomarker is only going to make it to the front page of the report if there is enough strength of medical evidence and there is at least compelling scientific evidence of therapeutic efficacy of a targeted therapy. So that highlights the importance of grading your strengths of evidence, whether it's A, B, C, D, or Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, where the strongest level of evidence is FDA approval, and then... You may have uh, clinical trials and published data that show efficacy of other targeted therapies, and so you need to be really, really clear on: here's the biomarker, here's the strength of evidence, and here are the therapies. Number one. The other thing that I, th- I think is really important is is to be able to take all of the different uh, technologies that have been utilized to test the patient and to to provide an integrative paragraph summary, uh, in our reports, we term that the clinical genomic pathology consultation that's written by a molecular pathologist. And so, for example, if you've got an EGFR exon 19 deletion and 30 mutations per megabase, a high tumor mutational burden, well, there needs to be a reconciliation of, hey, which therapy do you go after? And so in our reports, we would actually spell out that NCCN guidelines recommends going after driver mutations because patients with EGFR mutations do not have as high of a response rate to checkpoint inhibitor therapies. And these are things that need to be in every report and today, they're not. The second thing, Dr. Reyes, that you mentioned is molecular tumor board series. And, And I am a huge proponent of molecular tumor board series and having them in a multidisciplinary format where you have PhD level scientists, molecular pathologists, general pathologists, medical oncologists, genetic counselors, you really need to have a diverse uh, a co- constituency of attendees to these tumor boards. And those those make for just wonderful, outstanding, and very educational uh, discussions where you might discuss something as simple as okay, this is a HER2 alteration. Is it a mutation? Is it an amplification? Is it a protein expression? What does it mean for for, for the patient? Or you might need to dig right down into the science about the variant variant allelic uh, frequency. So again, it's hard to implement molecular tumor boards at scale. Sometimes it can happen once a month, but I'm a full supporter of these efforts because you have to supplement what's in the written report with live discussions with the various stakeholders.
2: Dr. Sandra, just to kind of draft off of what you were just talking about, I mean, pathologists are the first to receive results. You guys are obviously doing some exciting things to, to improve on the way the reports are, are being viewed and understood. Those are exciting things. So how does this expand to include and engage oncologists where you have pathologists and oncologists working better together really from the beginning of patient diagnosis to improve best practices in patient care and really ensure that more patients get access to precision oncology treatments?
3: Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I am a strong believer in implementing institutional reflex testing protocols. And those protocols need to be individualized and customized based on local multidisciplinary discussions between the pathology team, the oncology team, but you also need to involve the hospital administration team because if you're going to be doing testing for patients within the 14 days, which sometimes is medically necessary, then it's it's important to know, you know, what the clinical aspect of doing that is, but also what is the economic aspect of of doing that and come to a win-win that balances cost and quality, but really, at the end of the day, places the patient at the center of care. I think um, it's important to support the use of right technology and um, working collaboratively with oncologists to discuss cases. um, Either during existing tumor board sessions or carving out a separate molecular tumor board, I think we have seen the implementation of these molecular tumor boards. But um, we need to do a better job at scaling that. We need to do a better job at making sure that you have the right people at the molecular tumor boards because there are some molecular tumor boards that are that are you know only have oncologists and you may not have pathologists who can really guide on the interpretation of results and what the what actually the results mean and what the difference is between results within various technologies. so it's really important to to really be inclusive in the molecular tumor boards and then again communication 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 i think um it's really important that if there's a there's a highly actionable finding, myself or someone on my team, we will make a call out to the oncologist and be like, hey, listen, you're going to receive this report and here's what it means. And if you have any questions, let me know. Or sometimes we'll have, we'll have a signature that actually refines a diagnosis, something that's a carcinoma of unknown primary. Based on the molecular profiling results, you're able to actually tell the oncologist that Actually, this is a cholangiocarcinoma because you have an IDH one mutation, and therefore, you now have an FDA approved Category A Tier One biomarker to target. So, those are the types of of things that um, I think pathologists and oncologists can do better to communicate better with each other, but also to you know stress the importance of biomarker testing and utilize tools like molecular tumor boards. Mm-hmm.
2: No, that's good, Doctor Reyes. Anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, maybe. Because uh, I don't want to to mention the same thing. Um, I want to mention briefly because we're running out of time. Is the mm-hmm. economics? Um, for me, it's clear that there is no one vendor or company that does the absolutely accurate testing. You know, so I think all of them are ninety-nine point nine or something. But there is no like a one test that is the T test only. That's why, for example, uh, between liquid and tissue biopsies, even in the example that, that I gave you, that we make decisions based on liquid biopsies, thirty percent of the time we still need the result of the tissue, meaning that we need to order both. So for now on, we still need to order both, and that creates a lot of um, concern. Uh, I have, I, I know a lot of doctors that don't like to order both because they are worried about the the insurance um, coverage of the of the test, especially if you order both, and that's a major disadvantage for the patient because we, I, I think the reality is, uh, as today, we need both until the day that one liquid biopsy company does the perfect test or one tissue biopsy company does the perfect test. That is unlikely because, you know, the, there is always an issue with the tissue amount, and there will always be the issue in the liquid biopsy that the amount of tumor, you No, know? So, if you have a very uh, small tumor burden, there is no way that... Uh, that the liquid biopsy can be totally accurate. So, that is why uh, I think economics has an important issue here. And that is another barrier for for ordering both at the same time, reimbursement for both at the same time. And we we need a solution uh, for that. Um, Otherwise, you don't even have the doctors ordering because they're worried. And that creates the fact that, oh, let's do one first and let's see what happens. For example, we order tissue first, and then only if the tissue is not enough, we order liquid. That's what a lot of doctors have been doing because tissue came first. The problem is you're not thinking about the patient. If you remember, this patient started with a cough 90 days ago as an average. 90 days later, they come to you with a terrible diagnosis, you know, that it's a life-threatening diagnosis. And now you're telling, hey, you know, you need to wait three or four weeks until we can figure it out what's the best treatment for you. So that is, it's hard to do this sequencing testing. It's very difficult for the patients, despite that we have – that's why we need to find a way to find the economic issue. And the, the other way is also difficult because if I do the liquid biopsy, I don't find anything, okay, it was only nine days, but now you have to wait three weeks for the tissue. And in the meantime, all of, the, all of us are doing empirical therapy with only chemo, But that's the only solution that we can have until we get the proper testing. That's why I think a lot of things that uh, Dr. Chandra has said, like doing the reflex testing uh, or doing both tests at the same time, um, getting the insurances to to cover for this, and um, it's going to help. The other thing with economics also is I'm sure that the the cost of the test is going to go down. These tests were extremely expensive five years ago, and are getting cheaper. And since the fact that also there is competition are getting cheaper they're getting faster so i'm confident that hopefully that will be uh, that's something that can be solved uh in, in so it's, it's not something that we cannot um, uh, address finally um, one way to make also cost effective that has to do a lot of disparities because that is not necessarily reality in united states but if you find a, a place or a population that they one gene like EFR is extremely prevalent, for example, Asians or or Latin people. For I am Peruvian, in my country EFR is 40%. So maybe you can screen for EFR first, you know, and and do a PCR, and then for the 60% that are negative, you can do NGS. And that's another way to approach and do a more cost-effective medicine because this cost-effective, even if we are doctors, uh, I really have learned that if we don't fix these cost-effective issues, we have a lot of administrators, we have a lot of insurance, and we have even doctors that are afraid to to make the patients upset with a lot of bills, not helping to solve these these issues and not helping to fix um, these problems. Hmm.
0: Dr. Luis Reyes, Medical Director and Chief Scientific Officer at Memorial Cancer Institute, and Dr. Pranil Chandra. Chief Genomics Officer at PATH Group. Thank you both for being guests with us today on the Precision Medicine Podcast. And before we let you go, Dr. Reyes, I know you are super active out there in the oncology community. Um, you're currently VP of Flasco. Of, of How can some of our listeners get in touch or follow you on social media or otherwise?
1: Uh, I have a Twitter handler. It's LRise1. And... Uh... Uh, I, I always try to tweet uh, medical information. My passion is to be tweeting about that and trying to spreading knowledge. Um, basically, uh, in social media, I Also, they can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Um, I, I try to publish a lot of medical information there, and hopefully that can be of value for, for patients or for uh, other doctors. Thank Absolutely. you very much.
0: Absolutely. And Dr. Chandra?
3: Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and um, I I love uh, posting informative articles, but also reading them. I'm trying to do a better job at uh, posting more informative articles on there. So LinkedIn is definitely one way to get in touch with me. And the other is just simply email pchandra at pathgroup.com. And uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions that uh, you guys may have.
0: Perfect. Thank you both. That was quite a robust discussion and I imagine it won't be the first. Uh, I'd love to have you both back and um, thank you for your time today.
2: Yeah, that was great. Thank you, gentlemen. That was awesome. Thank you.
1: Thank you for inviting us.
0: You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrepello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine podcast, please share it. They'll thank you and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.